Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Raj Dante is one of the most prolific and multi-lens people in finance. He also happens to be an incredible human being, a dear friend, and a business partner. He's managing partner of Fenway Summer, an advisory and investment firm focused on financial services and fintech. He chairs the investment committee of Fenway Summer Ventures and is general partner across Bean Ventures, both of them fintech venture capital funds. He also serves on the boards of Circle, Green Dot, and Linden Lab. For Raj, Fenway is the latest chapter in a long and varied career in and around financial institutions as a senior policymaker, bank executive, and dealmaker on Wall Street. He was the first ever deputy director of the CFPB. Before public service, Raj was a managing director in the financial institutions group at Deutsche. He was senior vice president for corporate strategy and development in Capital One, and was a strategy consultant in the financial institutions practice of McKinsey. He graduated with a degree in engineering from Berkeley and holds a law degree from Harvard. Enjoy this incredible conversation. Raj Date, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Javier. We've known each other for many years, uh, and your career is just remarkable. I want to start kind of where I start a lot of these conversations, which is sort of at the origin. But if you, instead of you telling me that you're mad about the tooth fairy not leaving you money when you lost your first tooth. Although that was a tragedy. That was a tragedy, I'm sure. Um, kind of stuff from the beginning of your trajectory in life and some lessons, one or two that you learned early that you still draw on to this day. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I was born here in the U.S., but to Indian immigrants, um, uh, there are both physicians who came over here in a big wave of immigration in the mid '60s, and I was born in Boston and uh, in the early '70s. Uh, they are, by the way, um, owing to the fact that they are immigrant doctors, still to this day, not sure what in the world I do for a living. My hope, my hope is that I will retire <laughs> before they find out. Um, uh, anyway, we we uh, uh, at some point, my parents discovered that you know, having grown up in India, maybe being in Boston is not the most logical climate uh, to be in. Uh, so they moved to California, and that's where I ended up going to high school down in Orange County, went to Cal for undergrad, and then uh, uh, basically bounced between the East and West Coasts for the better part of 20 years. Um, uh, and, you know, I, although I have never actually told them, you know, my, my parents, as it turns out, <laughs> were quite important uh, in, you know, inculcating a sense of drive and a sense of values about what's important and what's not, that um, despite the fact that I was never especially explicit about it or intentional, I think really have been with me um, since those early days. I mean, things like the importance of leaders to really build a followership, in other words, um, mm -hmm. able to to be trusted and valued by people that you purport to lead. That's the kind of thing that I would see my father just kind of do effortlessly. And I hope on my better days anyway, I'm able to, you know, emulate that at least, you know, to 50% of what it is that he was always able to do. Well, and I have seen your leadership firsthand, but let's let's move a little bit more, more into 
what you do for a living now and the kind of the very squiggly path you've had around the business of money, finance. You clerked for a judge, then you went to McKinsey, which is when you and I crossed paths in the Jurassic era. And then kind of you've been bouncing around the world of finance, including starting, helping to start the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Can you talk a little bit about how you make sense of that squiggly line? Yeah, well, you know, one one could, if one were so inclined, um, construct a post-talk narrative in which there is a consistent and clear through line to my career that has always sort of been around the intersection of finance and technology and the law and policy and politics. But the reality is that that post-talk narrative, well, you know, interesting on the margin is pretty much not true because uh, that which you describe as a squiggly line, I think that's a that's a, a charitable way to describe, uh, you know, sort of the Brownian motion, kind of the random random walk that ha that had been my career, uh, and it's only by coincidence that it kind of makes sense in, in retrospect. But uh, just to recap, you, you know, I I went I'm an engineer and a lawyer by training, but never really did those things. I clerked for a judge for a year, who I learned a ton from, uh, but uh, ended up going to McKinsey and then to Capital One, and then I was on Wall Street, always doing kind of the same stuff. I was always focused on strategy and finance and M&A within financial institutions, banks, finance companies, investment banks, a little bit of insurance, mm -hmm. um, like the fact that it was in different seats over the time. Uh, and then when I left Wall Street in the beginning of 2009, um, my kids were not yet born. Um, kids, as it turns out, are expensive, but I guess I didn't <laughs> that, uh, because I thought, I mean, it's, it's, I can't, I can't even believe this is true, but at the time I really thought I have... I never have to work again. I can retire early. And that's not at all true. Um, but it was what gave me the confidence to um, set out on a path to get engaged in public policy, um, mostly because the things that I happened to know about at that time, you know, bank balance sheets, capital markets, consumer credit, all of that was like relevant from a public policy point of view during the spring of 2009. Um, and I didn't really know how to get involved. Uh, so I started a think tank which is a ridiculous idea, but the timing was perfect uh, because the issues that we were focused on were, you know, like literally front page news every day during the crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's through that, that I got to know the, at that time, the brand new Obama economic policy team, as well as improbably uh, Elizabeth Warren, whose daughter happened to have the office next to mine at McKinsey in Los Angeles, like 15 years prior. Uh, and she said, oh, you're starting a think tank. That is a ridiculous idea and it's going to fail. But if it does, <laughs> you should talk to my mother because my mother is the chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel on the TARP. So that's how it is that, you know, I ended up coming down to D.C. to help put together the, the CFPB after Donald Frank was signed in the fall of, this would have been the fall of 2010. And things just kind of snowballed. So uh, when she left to run for the Senate, I took her job as the acting head of the CFPB and then I stayed on as the deputy director for about a year, working with Rich Cordray um, until such time as the mortgage rules got out the door. I was sort of pas passionate about trying to trying to put in place a sensible framework to remediate some of the things that had gone horribly wrong in the run up to the financial crisis. Uh, and once those were done in 2013, I, I left and started my own firm, which you know well, uh, which is called Fenway Summer. Uh, what we do is we're essentially a hybrid advisory and investment firm focused on uh, new ideas, novel approaches and strategies within financial services. I think that we probably do our best work 
where there's some kind of capital markets complexity, some kind of credit complexity, or some kind of regulatory or policy complexity. So it's been 10 years and it has not been a uniformly positive experience, but much more positive than negative, and it's been uh, it's been on balance quite a bit of fun. We'll get into Fenway, uh, and for the for the listeners, Raj and I, uh, Raj started the firm. I'm one of the one of the partners at Fenway, and we'll, we'll get into that work in a second. But I want to ask you about the the CFPB. I mean, if I were to have my druthers asking somebody about starting an agency in finance, I would probably talk to Hamilton but he's not around anymore. You actually, I mean, to start an agency, so you were a McKinsey person, then you were doing, you were running M&A for Capital One when it was buying everything in their path. Then you were an investment banker for Deutsche. So you you were used to doing, doing, doing quickly, 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 private sector style. And now all of a sudden, you're in the biggest company of them all, trying to start something from scratch which very few people have had that experience in this century. Um, can you talk a little bit about difficulties trying to convince people? Like, just tell me a little bit about that experience because it's so unique. Well, yeah, I mean, it's um, it uh, was quite an experience and one that if I were to do it again, it probably wouldn't go as well and it would probably this time kill me. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm very glad to have had the opportunity and and proud of the work that uh, that early team did, um, but I'm you know I'm very mindful that there was a lot that was contingent, like a bunch of things broke our way that didn't have to, um, and as a consequence, I, I feel sort of grateful for it. Um, you know, it was it was difficult to do, as you point out, and the reason it was difficult to do is that it um, is that it had essentially all of the challenges of a startup, which, mm-hmm. as you know well. Um, it's hard. It's hard to take something from nothing at all to something that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, it had all the challenges of a post-merger environment because, after all, we were taking authority from, and in some cases, staff from, six or seven different agencies: the FDIC, the Fed, the OCC, and CUA, uh, and and uh, mm-hmm. sort of under one roof. And then it had, in addition to the challenges of a of a startup and a post-merger environment, it also had the challenges of a reasonably profound strategic overhaul um because after all this is a lot of work to go through and if you're just going to do things exactly the way that things had always been done before well that's sort of a waste of time so you so you had ought to use that moment to really really kind of think uh, from a clean sheet of paper about how things had ought to be done and reorient the strategy and tactics of the organization in a way that suits the moment and suits the challenge ahead and that's you know that's what we that's what we tried to do. When when I showed up at Treasury, um, I think we had like 14 people in a sub-basement in the main, at the main <laughs> Treasury. Yeah. And by the time I left, we had like 1,400. Um, so uh, it was uh, it was quite a ride. Just amazing. And um, and this you're talking about startups. And while well, I think most people may view you as a venture capitalist or investor, you're actually an entrepreneur yourself because Fenway has started a good number of companies, a uh, uh, digital credit card, digital mortgage, an advisory firm, like a couple of advisory firms. Like you are an entrepreneur as well, which comes in handy. Um, you mentioned a clean sheet of paper, right? Basically inventing things out of thin air, um, which is in some ways what is sort of happening 
with the business of money, transfer of value, fintech. I hate to use the word fintech, but you've had kind of this interesting front row seat to the transformation that technology has has made on the world of of finance. So a very open-ended question, which is Raj, technology, AI, I mean, whatever version of innovative capacity human beings throw at something, typically they improve it, sometimes not. But where do you see the business of money? We have we've had 23 years so far this millennium, let's say in the next 20 years. Well, yeah, as you might imagine, given what I do for my day job, which is mostly spend time around new ideas and energetic teams trying to do things differently, mm -hmm. I am optimistic about the next 20 years in financial services. And I'm optimistic in the two ways that I think matter the most, um, which is number one, I believe that we will be in a place where financial services serves as a better enabler and catalyst and lattice work for the real economy and the people who live within it than it has been to date. And second, in so doing, it will also be more inclusive, more far-reaching, uh, and more enabling of a broader swath of humanity's desires than mm -hmm. necessarily it has been in the past. So those two, uh, those two uh, vectors, uh, the inclusion on the one hand and serving as a more efficient and more all-encompassing steward of real economic activity, I think we should expect and even demand uh, that both of those axes uh, see real improvement through the development of technology and approaches that really still are just in their infancy and that I'm, I'm lucky enough to spend time around, as, as I know you are, uh, as well. Um, now, there are a number of things that the stewards of our policy framework, both in the US and abroad, will have to be attentive to, to be able to grease the skids of that change actually happening. Um, but I think there are a lot of well-meaning people who are paying attention and I'm even pretty, it's, it's, it's hard to be super optimistic about the kind of policy and politics machinery in the US right now, uh, but I am. Uh, notwithstanding recent evidence to the contrary, I, I am optimistic, and uh, and I think it's I, I could not have picked a better a better spot in terms of the confluence of both longer term trends and uh, and some cyclical trends that are going to make the next uh, several years super interesting. And I really hope your optimism translates into into actuality, because when you know I know you live in DC and live and breathe this stuff, but from the outside in, it's just a mess. Um, just, you know, every, every time they report on the, on the net promoter score of Congress, they say, this is the lowest it's ever been. And it keeps going lower and lower. You somehow are able to, <laughs> to draw on that optimism, but that's mostly because you are in fact, optimist. Last question. I lied. I have one more question. Here's, this. Uh, here, here's a, here's a, here's one trick though, um, is what's the trick. It's, it's very useful if you're going to be an optimist to have a very short memory. Uh, because otherwise the long string of disappointments would really would really set you back. It's the same reason why I love golf, because I'm just constitutionally suited for it. I only remember the good shots. Um, and I think <laughs> you have sort of the same attitude as an entrepreneur and somebody who has uh, some continued ambition and pride in the thing that we call our democracy. I thought, I thought you were going to say alcohol. One more question. 
Do you have a favorite? <laughs> do you have a favorite alcoholic drink? Uh huh. Um, well, I uh, I discovered at a restaurant in Ireland of all places a gin made in Bavaria called Monkey Forty Seven, and so the best cocktail available is a dry Monkey Forty Seven martini with a twist of orange. That's right, twist of orange. You hear, mm. you hear this. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about that is you really can only have one. You introduced me to Monkey 47, and it has become a, a staple of our household, especially in the mornings, uh, just before our morning runs. So thank <laughs> you, Raj. It, I mean, I talk to you all the time, but it's awesome to do it in this way. I really appreciate your time. Keep doing what you're doing. The world is lucky to have you. Thank you. Listen, thank you. I got to admit, when you first mentioned that you're going to be doing these podcasts, It's not as though I was thinking, you know, what the world needs is another podcast. But uh, having listened to the uh, episodes that have preceded me, uh, I got to say, like, you're doing something right because it's interesting. It's energizing. And I think you really kind of uh, uh, bring a lot to the table in what you're doing. So thank you for taking the time. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.